the thing that really helped me about giving a name to this force, you know, and calling it resistance, was that I could say, oh, the reason I'm at the beach today is resistance faked me out, you know, and got me to believe its siren song that today wasn't the day for me to start working, that I needed to take a, a rest day, whatever. So it's that the internal resistance is something we don't believe. We don't think it's there. It, it fools us. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. If you're coming back, welcome back. My name is Luke Story. You can find out just about everything you could ever want to know about me at lukestory.com. This is episode 363 featuring Stephen Pressfield, Overcoming Resistance to Discover Your Creative Genius. And man, am I super stoked for this conversation as I'm currently writing my first book. So I'm naturally obsessed with books about the creative process. I was ecstatic when I had the opportunity to interview Stephen Pressfield, the author of The War of Art, a seminal classic on creativity and one that I've listened to on audiobook, I don't know how many times, over and over and over again. Stephen not only wrote that book, but also The Legend of Bagger Vance, Gates of Fire, Tides of War, Last of the Amazons, Virtues of War, The Afghan Campaign, Killing Rommel, The Profession, The Lionsgate, Turning Pro, Do the Work, The Warrior Ethos, The Authentic Swing, An American Jew, Nobody Wants to Read Your Shit, The Knowledge, and The Artist's Journey. So as you can see, uh, he's quite prolific when it comes to writing. And uh, that's why I was so excited to talk to him, not only for my own benefit, of course, but for those of you that are seeking more freedom in your creativity, whether it involves writing or not. So this conversation is going to be uh, very instructive in terms of getting through the resistance that we all face. He did so, so much that uh, his debut novel, The Legend of Bagger Vance, was adopted for the screen. A film of the same title was released in the year 2000, directed by Robert Redford and starring Matt Damon, Will Smith, and Charlize Theron. So he knows what he's talking about. His struggles to earn a living as a writer, it took him 17 years, by the way, to get the first paycheck, are detailed in The War of Art, which is the primary focus of this conversation. But before we get ahead of ourselves and dive into this dialogue, I'd like to invite you to next week's show, number 364, Get High in Your Own Supply and Master Your Moods with the Happies, Scott Donnell. Today's conversation is also brought to you by Inside Tracker, Eaton Hemp, and Beekeepers Naturals. Here are a few nuggets you can look forward to from our guest, Stephen Pressfield. What led him to write the Art of War book? The difference between a lived life and an unlived life. Defining resistance and how it blocks all forms of creative process. The various forms in which resistance shows up. Procrastination versus resistance. How a victimhood mentality invites resistance. Self-doubt as it pertains to low self-worth and unhealed trauma. Why resistance is most powerful at the end of a creative project. Ego blocks in creativity. When you decide to turn pro and how. The top character traits of a pro. Not taking failure or success personally. Defining the muse and how to make contact with it. The supreme virtue. Advice for someone who wants to reinvent themselves and their career. And lastly, the War of Art mini course and how that can help you on your journey of creativity. So if you're someone who seeks more fulfillment and flow in your creative work, this episode will likely change your life as it's changed mine. Steven's message has been powerfully transformative for me, and I'm certain it will be for so many of you. And if you find that to be the case, please feel free to share it with a friend. Now enjoy this enlightening conversation with Steven Pressfield. 
Stephen Pressfield, welcome to the show, man. Hey, Luke, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so excited to have this conversation as we were uh, talking about prior to the beginning of the show. Man, I've been devouring the war of art. And this is a book that has been in my radar. I mean, for many years, I've heard it talked about so many times and you just, you know, you can't keep up with all of the great content out there. And then <laughs> right. we set up this interview. I was like, oh, it's that guy. Great. Now I really have an opportunity to uh, commit myself to digging into it. And I just have to say, uh, as someone who is in the beginning stages of writing a book, your ability to be concise, I mean, the information's amazing, but the delivery is so concise. I want to ask you first, what is your editing process? How do you condense, <laughs> you know, how do you condense such a potent message into, you know, such a relatively short book? Uh, well, it's a, it's a great question, Luke. Um, my first job was in advertising. I was like an advertising copywriter in New York City. And one of the things you learn in advertising, maybe you know this, is like a 30-second commercial can have no more than 60 words because that's how the announcer, you know, just can't, you know, deliver that fast enough. So again and again, I would write scripts and take them into my boss, whichever boss it was, many bosses, and they would say, cut the hell out of this thing. It is way, way too long. And, you know, finally, you found that you really could get it down to a very short number of words. But just the practice of again and again, looking at, at a sentence and saying, is every word in this sentence necessary? Is this sentence necessary? Could we cut these 12 sentences down to two? And so on and so forth. And um, another, another thing that was a great lesson for me is uh, in the movie business, they always want you as I was a screenwriter for about 10 years and um, they always pages cost money. So if you deliver a script, that's 120 pages, they're going to tell you, get this down to 90 pages. You know, it just has to, otherwise we can't make the movie. So again, you sort of go through this process of what can I ruthlessly cut and, and get, and get out of here. So that's uh, kind of how I learned that. That's, uh, that's incredible. I, I, I've heard people refer to that process as killing your babies. Ah, <laughs> no, yeah. you know, I think no, you can actually, you can keep your babies, but you want to kill all the crap that's lying right. around the side of the babies. Right. Right. That's a good idea. I guess you're removing the dirty diapers and keeping the baby. Yeah. Maybe. Um, so I, I recently read a book uh, called Bird by Bird by Annie Lamott, and it's, it's about writing. And she has this concept that she explores in there of diving in, uh, much in the way that you recommend just diving in and sitting down at whatever your art happens to be, uh, and that you want to write a shitty first draft and, and not edit as you go. And just even though you know it sucks and it's too wordy and verbose and whatever it is that you just keep going get her done, and then later come back and start refining the edit. Is that, you know, a process that you subscribe to, or do you kind of self-edit as you go? No, I'm completely on board for that process. I mean, when I, uh, for a novel, let's say, I will probably do 15 drafts. And the first five or six are quite different. The story, everything changes quite a bit. And I'm definitely in agreement with Andy Lamont. Like, the main thing in a first draft, I have my little mantra for that is cover the canvas. You know, I just want to get paint on every corner of the canvas, no matter how crappy it is, because 
it makes you feel so good to have a document that starts on chapter one and ends with the end, no matter how lousy it is, at least you can say to yourself, okay, I finished the book. Now I just have to rewrite. I just have to make it right. Whereas if you stop along the way and noodle and doodle and work on it, you'll be there forever and you'll never finish because your own resistance, your own self-sabotage will, will, uh, will, cut, will kick in. So I'm definitely a believer and start at the beginning, go as fast as you can to the end. Wow, that's incredible. 15 drafts. You know, as I'm working on my book now, I, I'm, I, yeah, I've done probably three complete chapters, a couple other bits and pieces. I'm just in the process of, of making a proposal. And as I'm writing, I'm like, yeah, I'll probably have to go through this once and kind of redo it and take some stuff out. I'm like, but hearing that, but it's funny, you know, when you're working on any creative project, and I used to be a musician, um, it's funny, you know, when you end up with the finished piece, right? you tend to forget about all of the stuff that you did cut out and all the edits that went into it, right? Because yeah, you you're do. just looking at the finished thing and thinking back to writing songs, you know, some of the first iterations of our favorite pop music songs were oftentimes pretty crappy. I mean, I'm a big fan of bootlegs. You know, I used to collect bootlegs of the Beatles uh, yeah. and the Stones and, you know, you'd hear the first rough idea of a song. You'd be like, oh my God, this is horrible. And then it turned into you know, Hey Jude or Stairway to Heaven yeah. or Brown Sugar or whatever it was, yeah. right? Yeah, it's amazing to see when you see something like that. I mean, one of my favorite movies is Paper Moon, if you remember that, with Ryan O'Neill and Tatum O'Neill from, I don't know, about 30 years ago or something, maybe more. But I remember seeing a first draft of that script. I thought the finished script was superb. There wasn't a, a false note in it. And the first draft was just absolutely horrible. And it was nothing even like it. You know, even the scenes were completely different. So you're absolutely right. Yeah. From draft one to draft 10 or something, everything changes. Sage advice. Well, you mentioned the word resistance. And this is, you know, a term that, uh, that you coined and is really the central theme of the war of art. And I just love how you have created this model uh, around not only identifying this resistance, but then of course overcoming it. What would be your definition? And we'll we'll dive into the nuances of it. But what would be a broad definition of resistance to kick us off in this conversation? Anytime, let's let's start from a writer's point of view, and we'll move on to other things. When you sit down in front of this thing here, you know, and there's a blank screen in front of you, or a blank piece of paper and a typewriter you can feel radiating in your face off of that screen a negative force that's trying to keep you from doing your work, you know, and that force will say something like, uh, let's go to the beach, you know, oh, well, you know, we got to take our car in for a brake job. You know, you can't drive around with bad brakes. We got to do it right now, right? Or another thing that that voice will say to you is, Luke, who do you think you are writing this book? This thing has been done a thousand times by much better than anyone you'll ever do. It's all been said before. Why are you even thinking about this? You're too old. You're too young. You're too fat. You're too skinny. You're a bum. You're a loser. Your mother was right about you. You can never do this. You know, those voices of self-sabotage, that's resistance. And anytime it applies, if you join a gym and suddenly you find yourself, Jesus, three months have passed. I haven't been to the gym one time. That's resistance. Anytime we try to move from a lower level to a higher level, there'll be this, this force in between trying to stop us. Go on a diet, stop drinking, you name it. Okay, great. So 
from your perspective, then this resistance seems to be more counterproductive and even destructive when it's um, originating internally versus externally. Is there any validation or consideration to the resistance of the world at large that, that you're trying to convince to receive your, your gifts? Well, that I, I feel like, Luke, it's, uh, that's a given. We all know that, right? It's going to be hard to find a publisher. It's going to be hard to get your songs out there on the air. You know, people are going to be competing. That's a given. We all accept that. But the thing about internal resistance is a lot of us, and for me, this was the same way for about seven or eight years while resistance was kicking my ass at the beginning of my career. You don't even know it's there. You know, you, you just find yourself, oh, you're at the beach. Oh, I was going to work today, but now I'm at that, you know, and you don't even think, you don't even realize what's happened inside your own head. So the thing that really helped me about giving a name to this force, you know, and calling it resistance was that I could say, oh, the reason I'm at the beach today is resistance faked me out, you know, and got me to believe it's siren song that today wasn't the day for me to start working, that I needed to take a, a rest day, whatever. Um, so it's that the internal resistance is something we don't believe. We don't think it's there. It, it fools us. Well, I think there's something really interesting in the insidious nature of resistance uh, that's internally motivated. And that is, you know, thinking about my own experience, oftentimes it seems to show up disguised as something more virtuous or more uh, with more moral precedence, right? So while I, you know, I can't skip my meditation today because I mean, that's the most you know important way to set up my day or, you know, I haven't called my mom in forever. <laughs> I really should, you know, it's not only, it's not like, oh, I'm going to go eat a bag of potato chips and watch soap operas or what, you know, it's, it's often something that's very meaningful and an important yeah. and intrinsic part of your life. And I think, is that not um, one of the, the um, forms of resistance that's not only the most difficult perhaps to identify, but to also overcome? You know, when you're doing something yeah. actually positive, but it's not the mission that you agreed with yes. yourself to complete. That's very, it's very astute of you to pick that up. In fact, I got to ask you, my next question to you is going to be about your, what resistance you're feeling. But yeah, resistance, I think of it as an enemy that is incredibly diabolical and very subtle, very nuanced, that knows everything about you and knows how to play on, on, on all of it. And, um, I just was watching Game of Thrones the other night. And they were talking about the character of Cersei and how she knows how to use legitimate concerns in an illegitimate way to get her to get her way. And that's exactly, as you say, exactly what resistance will do. One of those things, you know, you haven't called your mom in a long time. You know, that's something you want to do, but it's not what you want to do to get your work done. All right. So, yeah, that's very tricky. So I think. We, if we're trying to get our work done, have to recognize some of those things, you know, and remember that there's a difference between what's important and what's urgent, you know, or a difference in what's important and what's really important. And what's really important, if we have our priorities, our work, whatever we're trying to do, and other things just have to, you know, be prioritized lower than that. But let me ask you, what yeah. forms have you found as you're starting to write your book that resistance takes with you? Oh man, they're so numerous. I mean, on the thread that we were just on of some of the, the most insidious 
uh, well-intentioned forms of resistance would, would be what I indicated, uh, you know, any form of self-care, right? It's like, well, you know, I need to go prepare my supplements or do my, I need to jump in the hyperbaric oxygen chamber or <laughs> take a sauna or do an ice bath, meditate, do breath work, uh, read some spiritual literature, get tapped in, <laughs> you know, find my, my center, get in my heart, you know, those type of just self-nourishing practices, which are such a huge part of my life and also my message. So from the internal, it would definitely be that it's like, well, you know, I should, I, I, you know, I got a writing coach, thank God, who keeps me accountable. Uh, oh, she's, really? She's gentle, but still that each week there's a number of tasks that I'm uh, due to complete. And, you know, I'll think about her, her name's Jeannie. And uh, I'll think, oh man, Jeannie's going to be disappointed on Friday at 4 PM <laughs> because I didn't do the thing, whatever the thing was. And I thought, well, that's true, Luke, but you know, you really need to take care of yourself. You know, you, you got to keep your nervous system calmed down. You really got to be in the right headspace. Then you can write. So there's all of the, these sort of props and preparatory measures that go into my creative process. And some of which are, are valid. I mean, I do, I'm pretty good at getting myself into a flow state, uh-huh. but that flow state could take, you know, 10 minutes to activate. Or if I'm using this unconscious resistance, it could be a four hour, you know, a four hour morning. Well, I should probably take the dog for a walk too and get some sun in my eyes. You know, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Um, so internally that would be, and then, and then some of the ones I'd like to go into are some of the more shadowy elements, which you already indicated. It's like, well, someone's already written this book. There's a bunch of books like this. Who wants to hear this? Um, you'll never get it done. You're just going to go around and around. Um, and then even deeper than that, a, a self-doubt of uh, maybe, maybe I'm not even that great of a writer. Uh, are there enough people that are even know who I am to make writing a book worthwhile? Um, what happens, this is a good one, a future projection of, well, God, what happens if I write this whole thing and I complete all the chapters and at the end I realize it's going to be a different book? I'm not going to go back and do it over again because things have, you know, think that's, yeah. pro- that might yeah. be the biggest one. That might be the uh-huh. biggest one. Cause it's like, man, if I put all this work into this thing, I might extrapolate one chapter when I'm all done and that ends up becoming its own book and I have to scrap the original idea. So maybe I should just not do it at all. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know? So those, those are a few. Um, but on, on that note, I'd like to talk a little about um, procrastination because we've talked about you know, some of the, the ways, some of them positive, some of them not so much that can cause one to procrastinate in this form of resistance. How does procrastination um, sit in terms of the hierarchy of ways in which resistance shows up? I mean, is it one of the top ways or is yeah, it it's one number the, one? It's number, it's one. number okay. one. I'm sure it's number one. And uh, so that from the point of view of you or me or trying to, to accomplish our work, that's got to be number one in our mind too. You know, that to resist that impulse above all others, you know, because it's uh, and if it makes you feel any better, I've been doing this for 50 years and it's just as hard today as it ever was. That makes me feel worse. (laughs) Dueling resistance. Uh, Well, I'm sorry about that, but it's true. It seems to be a just a phenomenon of life resistance, self-sabotage. Uh, It's just there every day. It never goes away. But procrastination, definitely number one.
Listeners of this show want to take charge of their health and wellness. They're people who are seeking and striving to do all the right things for their body to give them more energy, better sleep, a healthy immune system, and to improve their personal performance and gain the vitality needed to live longer, better, healthier lives. I don't know about you, but that fits me 100%. Here's the thing, though. It gets confusing out there, right? There's a barrage of bias, misleading, impersonal information that creates a lot of doubt and confusion, which obscures your way forward. There are just so many experts out there, including the ones on this show, that are making universal recommendations without you really knowing what your body needs specifically based on thorough biomarker testing. So as a result, people often lack three important things to help them get a clear picture of what their body looks like on the inside, a clear measure of whether their diet and exercise choices are helping or hurting, and a clear idea of who or what to trust when it comes to health, wellness, and performance guidance. This, my friends, is exactly what Inside Tracker has been designed to solve. They're illuminating your path forward for your personal best. They offer folks like us a clearer picture than we've ever had before of what's going on inside your body. These guys provide an ultra-personalized performance system that analyzes data from your blood, DNA, lifestyle, and fitness tracker to help you optimize your body and reach your health and wellness goals. I just did the testing and uh, it illuminated quite a few surprising facts about what's going on inside this body. It's pretty incredible when you really see in front of you in a concrete way what your body needs. Inside Tracker was founded in 2009 by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics. Using their patented algorithm, they analyze your body's data to provide you with a clear picture of what's going on and to offer you science-backed recommendations that are ultra-effective for your diet and lifestyle. So once you've done your testing, Inside Tracker tracks your progress and makes recommendations based on what they find. So if you're ready to stop guessing about your micronutrient, mineral, hormone, and DNA status, Inside Tracker has the solution. And for a limited time, you can get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com/luke and start your journey into quantifying your body's performance. Again, that's insidetracker.com/luke for 25% off. Okay, and then what about a disempowered sense of self based in victimhood? Like, ah. you know, that the idea, well, I, there's this book that I read and I like it, but that person's had an easier life or they're a better position to do so on and on and on. So because I've had some rough breaks, it's not going to work for me anyway. However, that kind of victim mentality that I've had to really work hard to overcome shows up. What role does that play in this? Um, that is obviously another sort of classic form of resistance, but it's just, it's a hundred percent bullshit, right? That voice that's saying that is just that diabolical voice trying to screw us up, you know, and, um, you know, uh, sort of like, um, there's a, 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 a um, in Jewish mysticism, there's a kind of a disciplinary code called Musar. Um, M-U-S-S-A-R. And the, uh, it's a lot like the code of AA. And the first two steps are identify the sin and stop doing it. So in, in other words, it sort of completely cuts out that whole victimhood concept. You know, if the sin is I'm not doing my work today, the answer is simply do the work. You know, Forget it. So in other words, the only way to sort of respond to kind of a, a disempowered victimhood concept is to sort of dismiss it, that it's just a voice of resistance. It's not our voice. It's 
it's, it's self-sabotage and just dismiss it and do the work anyway. I know that sounds hardcore, but that's simply the way it is. Well, it makes sense. And, and I think, um, you know, anyone listening might think of some of the greatest works of art and how they have been born out of uh, adversity. I mean, you think about uh, Victor Frankl's A Man's Search for Meaning. I mean, if you want to talk about being victimized and yeah. perpetrated upon, right? And here comes this you know, life-changing, uh, beautiful work of art that's been so transformative for so many people. And it was really born out of that uh, yeah. depth of suffering, right? And, and of course, so many spiritual teachers and practices and treaties have been born out of suffering as well. So how fact, can you could make a case, Luke, yeah. that the best stuff comes out of suffering and the more intense the suffering, the better it is. In fact, what you might worry about, really, one might worry about is not suffering enough you know? <laughs> so that, you know, no terrible childhood or early life ever hurt a writer. You know, no man of suffering ever hurt him. It's always for the good. What was the grist for the mill if there was any suffering around your creation of the war of art? Was it, you know, years of, I know you spent many years, and I'd like to touch on that actually, many years of trying to get published and wanting to get your work out there and turn pro and tons of rejection. Was there more to it than that with your? Yeah, there was a lot purpose? more to it than that because, uh, you know, um, I disappointed a lot of people people that loved me and that I loved. I uh, um, broke up uh, a marriage that was, you know, very important to both of us um, and, and uh, caused a lot of pain to a lot of other people um, by my uh, being such a bum and a loser in the early stages of, of trying and being so defeated by this force of resistance that I couldn't even identify. I didn't even know it was there. So there was a lot of shame for me. I was driven by shame. I still am. Um, and I think that uh, that's actually a positive. I think shame is a very positive thing. But for sure, uh, th that was, there was a lot of grist for the mill. And it and, didn't hurt. It never hurt at all. And what about, um, you know, you talked about how many great writers or creators are able to use things like a rough childhood and traumatic experiences as fuel then to, I mean, I think about those things in my own life as a way to increase the amount of empathy and connectedness that I feel with other people. Because once one has suffered, you, I think if you overcome it, you're just naturally inclined to help alleviate the suffering of others. Um, but what about the, you know, the low self-worth and the self-doubt that comes out of this deeper sense of shame from traumatic experiences that we have uh, in our lives. Again, that's, um, th that is valid in and of itself. It's a real thing. We do, we, we will have that, some of us, but it's also resistance. It's also this diabolical force trying to use that against us, you know, like you were saying before, Luke, about self-care and positive things that you need, that you actually really need to do, low self-esteem or shame or something like that is a real thing that um, we do have to deal with. But there's a difference between that and resistance using that against us, you know, and, and us giving into it. Because there's really no excuse not to 
not to take care of ourselves, not to do our work. It's just a matter of, of the mental toughness to sit down and do it. So in other words, you know, one of the things that I'm sure we'll get to this when we're talking today, the difference between an amateur and a pro, right? And an amateur's attitude is, and I say that this is a bad thing, something we do not want to be amateurs. An amateur's attitude towards work is when I feel like it, I'll do it. Or if mm -hmm. I don't feel like doing it, I won't do it. How could I work today? I just feel so shitty. You know, I have no confidence in myself. It's whatever. A professional's attitude is they don't care what they feel like. That doesn't even enter the picture. We're going to go to the gym. We're going to go to the track. We're going to go to the dojo, whatever it is. We're going to sit down and do our work no matter what we feel like. And I'm sure you know this from, from your experience in various things, Luke. Sometimes those are the best days. Right. Sometimes when you go to the gym and you feel just absolutely like shit. Right. You've got and you find out you had the, one of the best workouts you ever had. I don't know why that is, but a lot of times the, the bad days actually turn out to be the best once you actually get into it and do it. Yeah, that's definitely been uh, been the case with me in, in, in many uh, instances where. Let's just take writing. I, I just know I have something due or a podcast or, you know, anything that's a chunk of time that needs to be taken out to complete something. And uh, it's not that I would say I'm a pro in the sense that even when I don't feel like it, I always do it. But what's definitely evident is the boost of neurochemicals you get when you know that you've even subconsciously beat resistance and done the thing anyway. Yes. And perhaps we get even more of a high when we do something, when we don't feel like it, then we will wake up like, awesome. I can't wait to dive into my work today. <laughs> and then you do it. Maybe you get a little more of a reward uh, from your neurochemistry or however that's generated uh, when you really didn't want to, and you did it anyway, there's, there's a little more, there's an added victory element to that perhaps. Uh, then what about um, this idea that you present in the book about how resistance is often most powerful at the end of a project in that final stretch. How does that play out and why is that so? Well, for instance, I'll give you a story from my own life. First, uh, um, I quit a job in advertising at a real early age and just tried to write a novel. And I spent about two years working on it. And I got right to the finish line, right to the end. And I blew it up. I choked. You know, I just acted out, blew up my entire life. And I had never really thought about that at, at the time, but I've seen it repeated over and over and over again. And I think, again, if we think of resistance as this diabolical enemy that knows, you know, what our weaknesses are, uh, when resistance sees that we're this close to finishing it, it kind of ups the ante and really goes after us to try to blow us out of the water. And that's when we kind of panic. Um, I had a friend who, uh, a writer, um, I, I don't know if this story was in the war of art or not, but he had this book, this novel that he had written, um, years and years of work. It was in its case, ready to get sent off to his agent. And he just couldn't make himself do it. In other words, it was right at the finish. He was even done. It wasn't like he was three pages from the end. And the sad part of the story is he died. And so, you know, but at the finish line is, is, the, is the time when resistance will really hammer us. There are other 
per, very predictable points that resistance will go after. So one is right at the very beginning, and another is in the middle. The act two, you know, nightmare, the horrors of act two. But they are very predictable places. And another one for me that I've really had to deal with lately is after we're done and it's time to like promote it or to do to get out there in the world, I've had massive resistance against that. And uh, so in any event, yeah, at the finish line, it's always the hardest. So if it's, it's my understanding or, or maybe even subjective experience that you know, when, when you've got a burning desire to put something out into the world, especially I think in, in terms of, I mean, everything's art, right? You could be an entrepreneur and that's your art, but speaking of art that people consume, it seems to come from this true art seems to come from this deep place where it's just this burning inside your heart and you've just got to get it out. And it's generally something that, um, is going to serve other people or help other people in some way, if not entertain or inspire or inform them. And so it seems to me that legitimate art is coming from your higher self. You know, that's the, the impetus for its creation, inception, completion, higher self, meaning who and what we really are beyond the, the body, the intellect, the ego. It seems that great art comes from that place, right? And that's that's the true voice of who we really are going, you have to do this. Like you've been given the sign, you've been given the creative inspiration, go. So it would lead me to think that when we're talking about resistance, that it's rooted in the ego. And would that- uh, I would say that exactly. Yeah, I okay. agree with that completely. So the interesting thing about that, because I, I kind of gathered that from your, your stance on this, the interesting thing is I have spent many years interfacing with my own ego and developing a relationship with it, finding peace with it, putting it in its place, et cetera. I've arrived at this understanding that creation gave us this ego, this sort of uh, alternate personality as a means uh, with which to protect us, to keep us here embodied. And this is getting a little philosophical, so hang in there. No, this is good. I love this. So there's a certain school of thought in spirituality and in religion, of course, where ego is bad. It's the enemy. You have to get rid of it. And then we go around in circles trying to get rid of something that is just part and parcel to making us human. It's the human animal self that seems to be driven by these instinctive drives and this need for protection and safety, right? Or gain and resources, sex, food, shelter, all that. So it's so weird that the ego would be fighting against the soul's mission in this way when in fact these creative ventures not only serve the soul that the ego is trying to protect, but ultimately the ego itself. So it's like, why do you think the ego is fighting against us just getting something done when it's going to improve all of our lives, you know, all those different parts of ourselves are going to be served. Whereas in the more um, destructive things of ego, like let's say, you know, you become an alcoholic because you don't want to feel the feelings and be the, having the experience of who you are. So the ego will get you into all kinds of trouble and deviant behavior and things like that, or combative relationships and all that in an effort to protect you. But it's like, when it comes to creativity, our soul doesn't need protecting. The ego should just be on board with the project. Why does it fight it? I mean, that's a hell of a deep question. Here. I know. <laughs> I know. I think it's it's sort of the nature of the human condition in the sense of are we spiritual beings who are for the time being in a physical body 
Is that the nature? I mean, I believe that. Um, so in that case, we've got these two identities. The ego is kind of the identity that uh, tells us, you know, when we walk down this path through the woods, a saber-toothed tiger might jump out of us from the right. We better be ready, right? So we can't go without that. But at the same time, if we are spiritual beings, basically, we also have the self, the Jungian capital S self, that's, that's trying to bring us as co-creators, you know, with the divine, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so the two are going to always kind of be the ego and the self are always going to be in, in conflict with one another. I think it's that the real, it's sort of the question of why are we alive? What is life? Why did God put us on this planet? You know, and, uh, you know, that's, that's, I guess it's it's the human condition that we have to deal with, bouncing from one identity to the other and balancing the two if we can. But in the end, I think we're all going to go back to being the self, you know, when we pass beyond this body. At least that's what I believe. I yeah, hope. Yeah. Uh, but meanwhile, we got to pay our taxes. We got to have a driver's license and we got to cross the street at, on the green. Um, right. So I wonder if it's, and I know that was a, 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 a huge question to unpack, but I'm just so curious about it. So I'm just going to spitball here. I wonder if the ego perceives the execution of our projects and work as a threat because it knows on the other side of that is the possibility of rejection or failure. And that's the thing that's, 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 uh, sort of incentivizing it to create this resistance because it doesn't want the outcome ah. of, a, of the vulnerability ah. of having a completed work that then is facing scrutiny, rejection, failure, et cetera. Maybe there's something in there. You know, I never have thought of that before, Luke. Now, what I would say of that is that when the ego feels us going over to the self, it's afraid that it's going to lose control, that it's ah. going to be proved unnecessary, right? If we go all the way over and seat our identity in the self, which is what artists try to do, right? And also holy men and women and et cetera, et cetera, then it's almost like, well, the ego doesn't have a, is out of a job. And I think that's what, you know, right. maybe you're right, but I think the ego is really more threatened that uh, it'll be out of a job. Wow. That's very interesting. Yeah. Because when you're in that creative flow and you're in a state of inspiration, there's a direct channel with creator that's inspiring the work. I mean, we're, we don't, I think like whenever I do something well, I try to remain humble enough to know it wasn't my idea. Right. I mean, even every word that comes yeah. out of my mouth right now, I'm not generating that it's happening. I guess if the channel's open through the inspiration of the divine or God or whatever it is. So yeah, perhaps there really is something in that, that it's, its existence is threatened. And so it doesn't want that channel of, of higher creation coming through you because then it, it thinks it's going to, it's going to die. Right. So maybe yeah. even more so than it trying to keep you alive in the sense of, you know, it's, um, motivations and instincts around the body and the physical self, but perhaps it's, yeah, it's that positionality that it seeks as the dominant force and motivator so that the true self, the higher self doesn't come in and just subjugate yeah. it to the dunce corner where it often yeah. should, should I mean, live. We're, we're guessing, we're speculating, you know, yeah, but yeah. that might make, make some sense. 
I think most people listening to this podcast on a regular basis are well aware of the benefits of CBD for doing things like reducing inflammation, muscle recovery, anti-anxiety, stress support, and of course, sleep support. In fact, I've been using CBD products for sleep for a number of years, and I found it to be one of the most effective things you can do. The problem is, is that the CBD market is very saturated and there's lots of noise, so it's tough to find a reliable product. That's why I'm behind Eaton Hemp because their CBD is USDA certified organic. In fact, they were one of the first on the market to produce CBD in this way. And this is really important because the hemp plant is a phytoremediator, which means it sucks up all the nutrients from the soil. Now, the problem with that is it also sucks up all of the toxins and heavy metals. So if your CBD is not grown organically, you're actually getting a concentrated shot of metals, pesticides, and any other junk that happens to be in the soil. And many people aren't even aware of this. Now, if it's organic, you get all the goodness of that clean soil. Eaton Hemp CBD is minimally processed and infused with their own organic hemp seed oil grown on their farm in upstate New York. So I love this product. I use it every day. They have a really strong version that is absolutely incredible for sleep. If you're ready to check it out, it's super simple. Go to eatonhemp.com. That's E-A-T. O-N-H-E-M-P, eatonhemp.com. And if you use the code Luke, you're going to save 20% off. That's Luke for 20% off at eatonhemp.com. What about this concept of turning pro that you alluded to? I'd like to delve into that a little bit more, the difference between a pro and an amateur, because I think a lot of people would hear that definition and say, well, a pro is someone who makes money doing what they're doing and an amateur is someone who's a novice that has a, a, you know, a side gig to keep them going. How would you frame that difference? Um, the, uh, if I may put a plug in for a second book of mine called Please. Turning Pro, which is sort of, was the first follow-up to the War of Art. That's, it really gets into this in detail. But the, once we sort of acknowledge that there is this negative force called resistance and it can really kick our ass, you know, the next question is, well, how do we overcome it? And what worked for me, I'm not saying it worked for anybody else, but was the idea of, as you say, turning pro. And what I meant by that was not that we say to ourselves, oh, I'm only now going to work for money and nothing else, you know, but rather a pro as, um, as distinct from an amateur. And an amateur has amateur habits and a pro has professional habits. And an amateur is somebody um, that, let's say, when an amateur encounters adversity, if we're in something as an, in an amateur way and we encounter adversity, we fold. You know, it's like, oh, I don't really feel like it. It's too hard. I'm not going to do it, right? Whereas when a pro encounters adversity, I'm thinking of like Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan, Tom Brady, somebody like that. When a pro encounters adversity, they just push through it. They recognize it as a, 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 an aspect of reality, and they push through it. And an amateur is kind of a dabbler, is a weekend warrior, is in something as an avocation, just for fun, until it gets hard. You know. Whereas for a pro, they're in it full time. Every they show up every day. They're there every. You know, they're really committed. And um, the great thing about the idea of turning pro, in my mind, is. It doesn't cost any money. You don't have to read a book. You don't have to take a course. It's just a matter of kind of changing your mindset and saying to yourself, you know, 
I'm not an amateur, I'm a pro. Um, I remember I had a friend, a woman, who took up golf at like age 38, something like that. And uh, she had taken it up for about a month and I hadn't seen her or anything. And she invited me to go play golf with her. So I met her down at this golf course and she was like, dude it up. She looked like she's just stepped off the LPGA tour. You know, she had a good club. She had everything like that. And she said to me in very serious, she said, you know what? I stink. I'm not good at this game, but God damn it, I'm going to get good at it. And I decided that I'm not going to be a hacker that's out there, you know, with some crappy clubs and, you know, I'm taking lessons, I practice my short game, and I look like a pro, and I think like I'm a pro. And I remember really shaking my head at the time saying, wow, that's a hell of an attitude, you know? But, you know, within a year, she was a respectable player. And I, I really take my hat off to her for that attitude. That's great, yeah. There are some other character traits that you identify of the pro that I think are worth exploring as well. Uh, you talk about how a pro seeks order. Yes, definitely. I mean, uh, an amateur usually, at least in my days as an amateur, my life was utterly chaotic, right? I lived in the back of my truck, et cetera, et cetera. You know, everything, everything was a mess around me. If I wanted to find anything, I couldn't. And you just can't live like that. You know, you can't work like that and accomplish anything. So um, a pro definitely is a pro is kind of like one analogies I use. When you turn pro, you become like the Blues Brothers. You're on a mission from God, you know? <laughs> you're, you're, you're now, you're not allowed to just be a bum. And, and, you know, you've got something you're aiming for. You have an intention, like a hero in a movie. And things have to drop. You have to get rid of certain things in your life, certain detritus, certain distractions, sometimes people. And part of order is that. You know, getting rid of the stuff you don't need and what you do need, having it in order. A lot of times I think, I don't know if uh, I'm not a sailor, but I have friends who are sailors. And I know that when you're on a sailboat that and you're out in the real ocean, not just pooping around in the harbor, everything's got to be in its place. Right. Because when the shit hits the fan and the storm comes, you got to know where to grab whatever it is that you need. And I think that that's that's the. Uh, that's an attitude I really respect and admire. That's a professional attitude. That's order. You have to have it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, in thinking about uh, my current situation, I just moved to Texas, uh, as, as I think you know, and uh, we're renting out a temporary furnished apartment while we do some work on the house. And uh, because it's not like our space, I find it much more difficult to keep it decluttered. Ah. So there's just it's just a lot kind of messier than it would be if I was living in my normal home. I'm pretty tidy. I, I like things to be in their place and all that, but there's not places for things, so it's a little cluttered. And I've noticed that that actually brings up some resistance because of what you just described. It's like just knowing there's stuff around that needs to get done or seems to need to get done and put away yeah. and sorted out. Then that sort of rubs energy from the creative process and makes it much more difficult to focus. And that can be true. I, just a couple of days ago, I went on my desktop, which had been like a year. I haven't cleaned it up. It was just an absolute pig pen. And I went in and I filed every single thing on my desktop into a hierarchy of folders in Dropbox. And that's just, a, you know, might seem like a little thing, like big deal. You organize your computer. No, it's not a little thing at you all. Know? But the amount of like 
creative and mental space that that opened up was incredible. It's just, I opened my computer and there's not a bunch of noise. So it makes it easier to go, okay, what's the thing? Like, what's the, uh, yeah. you know, what's the, um, the hardest thing on my docket today. And, and it makes it much easier to go after that hardest, scariest thing first, instead of being distracted by a bunch of, um, uh, clutter and noise on, on the perimeter of my workspace. Yeah. I mean, clutter, if, again, if we think of resistance as this diabolical enemy that's out to use anything against us, clutter is one of its great, you know, allies. If the more it can clutter up our minds and our lives, I mean, if you think about social media and the web, that is like clutter with a capital K, you know, it's that's and uh, and the reason the Internet and, and social media are so popular, I think, is they feed right into our resistance. You know, they let us yield to it and distract us and take us down rabbit holes and so on and so forth. So you were very smart to declutter things, Luke. And yeah. you know, I remember reading a story about Tiger Woods that when he stays, this was back in his heyday, it's probably true now, in a hotel, he makes the bed in the morning. That, and I think that, that is a very telling gesture. You know, he doesn't just leave it as a mess, you know, with Milky Way wrappers and, you know, stuff like that laying in there for the for the maid to clean up because he's a pro. He his attitude is a thoroughgoing professional. And he figures, I'm, you know, it's like they say nobody ever washes a rental car, but why not? You know, yeah, it's it's an aspect of of, of mental toughness and of self-respect, I think, to do that. I think Not so that too. I do it, but it, but <laughs> I think it's, it's a great thing to do. I'm going to be honest, since we're in a temporary, I have not made the bed once any day ever. Uh, but there is, <laughs> there's another piece to that I think that's valuable. And that is specifically to making the bed or whatever that first thing in the morning is, is it's like the setting up a um, sort of inertia of success or completion, even if it's just a couple small things. I know I think there's a definite, um, you know, it's micro, but it is a motivator in making the bed in the morning. And you know, like you've accomplished one thing before you even left the bedroom, right? Sort of sets yes. you up for this productive kind of mindset, wherein, uh, in contrast, if one was to open their phone and start getting lost down the rabbit hole of social media, you might be laying there for four hours and not, not even get out of the bed, you know? Yes, so these, absolutely. These, these micro decisions, I think, are really important. Uh, they're nuanced, but over time, I think, as we kind of habitually train ourselves to just eliminate some of this, add some of that, you end up with, how many books do you have at this point, by the way? That I've written? Yeah. Uh, the newest one is number 20. Okay. Well, there you go. So you're, you're on to something. I didn't start till I was 54. I didn't have wow. the first one until I was 54. So there's a lot of hope for you, Luke. Oh, that's so <laughs> you're, encouraging. You're way ahead of me. That's so encouraging. Well, I'm 50, so, you know, maybe mine will be really? out. Really? Wow. You look like you're 34. All right. Clean God living. bless you. Clean living. Um, another thing that I like, an attribute of a pro that you talk about is that a pro doesn't show off. Hmm. Unpack yeah, I think that's another thing. Now, I, now, there's, like I say in the book, every now and then a pro will do a, you know, a 360 degree tomahawk jam, you know, just to show that they can do it, you know? But I think... Again, like it's what you said before that we recognize when we're working in the arts or anything creative that the stuff we do is not coming from us, you know, 
you know, you didn't write that song and Elizabeth Gilbert didn't write that book. And I didn't write that book either. You know, it came through us from some other place. So I think if, if we show off um, or let our egos get out of hand, the goddess is watching and she doesn't like that. You know, she says, you know, I'm the one that gave you that stuff, you know, so stop taking credit for it. So, and I think a pro recognizes that and, and, uh, and doesn't show off. And that would also speak to this idea around not taking our failure or success personally, right? If we're less ego identified, then we know, like, if I succeeded, it wasn't all me. I had help. And if I failed, then, well, it's easier to arrive at that. Well, I guess it wasn't meant to be. I'm going to move on to something else rather than you know, beating yourself over the head and yeah. getting so identified with yourself as a failure when all it was was just an idea that people didn't respond to. Yeah. Do you have any more to say on that? Um, um, well, it's very, it, this is a real tough one because it really goes into your visceral response. You know, we all hate to fail. Rejection is a horrible thing, you know. But again, the, if you can adopt a professional attitude, then you recognize that, you know, most things are going to fail. Like there's a classic story about Jed Harris, the Broadway producer back in the 20s or the 30s. And he had like an amazing string of hits. And he was being interviewed by a young reporter. And the reporter said, uh, well, Mr. Harris, how do you explain the failures? And Jed Harris started to laugh. He said, that's not the question. The question is, how do you explain the hits? In other words, failure is the norm, right? Rejection is, is the norm. And but it's still very, very hard to deal with it. That's for sure. My, there's, a, there's another story that um, when Cole Porter was writing songs for the movies, um, he would, somebody, uh, well, one of his songs got rejected for some movie. And one of friends, his friends said, how do you, how do you deal with that, that rejection? And he said, I got a million of them. There's another one coming down the track, you know, and, and I think there's a lot to be said for that. That's a great kind of attitude that uh, we'll move on to the next one and the next one after that, and the next one after that. I love it. That's really good. And then what about uh, the importance of you, Inc., you know, of this idea, I mean, figuratively and legally, uh, as you talk about the changes that took place uh, for you when you incorporated yourself and became your own employee, part of it, but more just you as a creator of thinking of yourself as a company rather than just some rogue artist on a mission uh, of doom. (laughs) Well, that's another sort of uh, thing of, of, uh, of being a professional, of, of adopting of a, a professional attitude. Like when I first got out to Hollywood and I, and I, I learned that most screenwriters incorporate themselves and they don't write, they don't make a deal as themselves, their name, but they make a deal for their corporation, FSO, for services of themselves, you know? And what that does is it puts them at one remove from, you know, the the arena, you know? And it allows them, or, and I, I thought, even if I wasn't literally incorporated, just that mindset was a great mindset because then I'm not taking it so personally if I'm rejected. You know, I can look at myself as the CEO of the corporation. I say, well, Pressfield screwed up. You know, <laughs> right. he's a bum. I'm firing his ass. 
But me, the CEO, I'm going to sit down and think, okay, what did we learn? How can we move on? What's the next step? And uh, that's a professional attitude rather than an amateur attitude. And incorporating oneself, whether you do it literally or not, is a, is a good way to reinforce that attitude. If you enjoy the Lifestylist podcast, just know that it would not be possible without support from Beekeepers Natural. So let's go ahead and give them a round of applause. Now, they've got an amazing suite of products all based on our little friends, the bees, and the amazing things that their tiny little bodies produce in the world. So there's a number of different products that I use from Beekeepers Natural. So I'm going to focus on one right now, and I think this might just be the flagship. Maybe not to them, but definitely to me, just because it is so packed with nutrition. And if you didn't know this, honey in and of itself is one of the most powerful superfoods on the planet. Then add to that propolis, which contains antioxidants and germ-fighting compounds, which work together to support immune health. And finally, royal jelly, which contains the neurotransmitter acetylcholine and ultra-unique fatty acids that promote mental clarity and brain focus. So bee-powered, tastes delicious, can be drizzled into warm drinks or over foods like yogurt, toast, gluten-free, hopefully, smoothies, whatever. So like you would use any bee product, you're going to use this the same way. It's just an incredibly upgraded bee product. So if you're ready to check out Bee Powered, here's what you do. Go to beekeepersnaturals.com. That's B-E-E-K-E-E-P-E-R-S-N-A-T-U-R-A-L-S. Beekeepersnaturals, the S there, dot com slash Luke Story. And when you get over there, you're going to save yourself 15% off by just using that URL. So beekeepersnaturals.com slash Luke Story. What you're going to look for there as a good starting point would be Bee Powered. I think that uh, that you ink concept also probably helps with accountability, right? Because it's not just you as an individual going, eh, I feel like screwing off today. It's There's this inherent sense of responsibility to the corporation, right? To your employer, which of course is also you, but there's a, there's some sort of disciplinary key within that, I think, because you're now yeah, I mean, expected like to perform on you were talking about that. having a writing coach. Right. That is somebody that's the equivalent of the CEO of your corporation, right? And when you want to screw up, you know, you start to think, uh-oh, what is Jeannie going to say about this? She's going to, you know. So, yeah, if you can, you know, create that coach in your own mind and it's you, that CEO in your own mind, then that helps to, to be accountable and to make you sit down and do your thing. When you talk about uh, inspiration, and we've alluded to that a bit here, where these ideas that uh, exist in the ethers are able to be harnessed and channeled into a work of art or a project. What is the muse? And that's, that's a term that you use a lot and I'm starting to kind of understand how you use it, but I think there's something really important to unpack there because I always thought of a muse as like, it's your girlfriend or, you know, like someone that inspires you rather than like the muse, capital T, capital M, that is this universal source of inspiration and creativity. Well, in Greek mythology, the muses were nine sisters, the daughters of Zeus and Mnemosyne, which means memory, and their job was to inspire artists. They were goddesses, right? And each 
muse had a different field. Terpsichore was the muse of dance. Calliope was the muse of, I'm not sure what, but there was a different muse for every, uh, for every form of art. And the way the Greeks saw it was, and this is what Elizabeth Gilbert says in her famous TED talk, that um, when we, you and I come up with an idea, it's really coming from another dimension of reality from a higher dimension and sort of the classic image of the muse is like Beethoven at the piano and this sort of uh, hazy figure of a goddess is whispering in, in his ear, you know, humming a few bars of the ninth symphony or whatever. So I'm definitely a believer in that. And I, my mind works in an anthropomorphic way. So when I like to think of a goddess, I like to think of a, you know, an actual person with a face, you know, or, um, but um, you could think of it as the quantum soup or whatever. It's something coming from somewhere else. And I definitely, you know, it's, I'm sure it's your experience in music and it's mine in writing that things come from some other place. And the, the artist's skill is, or at least one skill, is opening the pipeline to that place. You know, tuning into the cosmic radio station and, and hearing what's coming for you. One of my favorite examples of that uh, phenomenon is the story of how Keith Richards wrote the riff for Satisfaction. Oh, tell me that. I've never That's heard a, that. No, I can't wait really, to hear this. If, if, I'm a Stones fanatic, so I know all the Stones stories. But uh, they were on tour, and he was in a hotel, and in the middle of the night, dreamt this riff. Woke up, leaned over, and just mouthed it like that, just hummed it into a tape recorder, went back to sleep, woke up the next day and was like, ah, what was that thing? Played it, picked up the guitar, and wrote the riff. And that was it. Wow. You know? Is that true? Do you think that's really true? I mean, true? he's he's always told that story since ah. you know day one. I mean, every I mean, interview that, that's ever asked him about it, that's that's the official story, you know. So that absolutely coincides with my experience completely. And that that it's coming in a dream means it's that would be the muse. The muse to me is what that dimension, the unconscious, whatever you want to call it, that uh, we tap into in dreams and in intuitions in sudden moments of inspiration. So that absolutely makes great sense. Thanks for telling me that story. It's a great yeah, it's story. A I love one. that riff too. Yeah, me too. It's it's it, yeah. Well, I mean, it's you know, it's one of the best. I mean, anyone that alive today would recognize that if it came on the radio. I mean, yeah. it's just, so it just goes to show that the highest inspiration, I mean, imagine the contrast of that versus, you know, sitting down at your guitar, piano, typewriter, keyboard, whatever, and just having nothing and just forcing something to come out without having some understanding of that phenomenon and building your uh, ability to tap into that. And, and to then I guess have the discernment and, um, awareness to be able to recognize like, ah, this is an idea. Like yes. I know that one came from the muse. I'm going to pay attention and I'm going to do something with it. I think it's, you know, there's a bit more value in those moments. Like I had a thought actually, um, this, the last night after having a phone call with someone, uh, just two thoughts kind of collided and I thought, Oh, that's good. You know? And I, I have to write it down because I know that it was, it wasn't me. It was a, a dot, it was the muse being the dot connector. Like, hey, Luke, have you ever noticed how this thing's related to this thing? And I was like, oh shit, I got to take note of that, and and I actually will write it down. So as we start to refine this antenna and uh, communicate with the muse, 
and kind of build this, um, you know, this inner knowing when a really good idea is coming through from the ethers or from the quantum, however you want to state it, then it seems even more important to be mindful of the resistance that then could come up and say, eh, you don't need to pay attention to that. That's not the great of an idea. Or you had this other idea, you know, how does, how does the muse and resistance uh, collide? You know, it's funny. I, I, I never even thought about that, but it, um, I would say in my experience, when I hear that riff, that satisfaction riff, I know it's for real, you know, and nobody's going to convince me otherwise. Um, I think when you do, when it does come through and you have, a, you have something really good, I think you know it. At least I do. And then uh, I would assume you want to document that in some way, at least a scratch note of it. So oh, yeah, it, definitely. So but you I don't mean, lose I'm, it. And I do. I, I keep, uh, you know, I have my phone handy and I have all that sort of stuff to, to keep it. But I'm thinking also, like, sometimes you'll, as a writer, you'll write a page or two or three pages that are like the equivalent of Keith Richards' thing there. And when you look at them the next day, almost always you recognize it. You say, this is good. I don't know where this came from, but I'm not throwing this away. What would you say to someone who is at a turning point in life and needs to reinvent themselves? You know, maybe they're someone who's able to kind of overcome resistance and they're tapped into the muse, but they're doing something creatively or professionally that's just not feeding their heart and they want to make a massive pivot. What's a piece of advice you might offer someone in that position? Well, I, I hate to, I would hate to <laughs> take this, say, jump off the cliff, you know, even though I did it a bunch of times. The, the one thing I, can, I would say is it is possible not to blow up your life and to continue to pursue your, your art. You know, there are 24 hours in a day and we can always, you know, prioritize and carve out two or three hours or whatever, even, even one hour. And over the course of a week, and if you get some, a couple hours on the weekend, you can get, you know, 10 hours a week. And that's a lot of hours. So, but I would certainly say pursue it and, and, and make it a priority. Um, but I, I would not advise anybody to jump off the, off the cliff, you know, unless you absolutely feel it in your bones and there's no way not to do it. Got it. Thank you for that. And who have been three teachers or teachings that have influenced your life or your work that you might recommend to us? Um, uh, <laughs> uh, well, here's, uh, this actually goes to what you were just talking about, Keith Richards. One of the things I really believe in is listening to your dreams, listening to your, and, and particularly in the, in light of resistance. Like right now I'm working on a, on a new book that is kicking my ass seriously with resistance. And I'm, the voice is overpowered. I've been, I'm like nine months into it and it's still horrendous, you know, but I have had three or four dreams that have encouraged me you know, and that basically have said to me, don't let this voice get to you, it's resistance. And uh, so I'm definitely a believer in, in paying attention to one's dreams. I'll rec I, there's a book I always recommend called Inner Work by Robert Johnson, who's a famous Jungian therapist. And it's, it's about how to analyze, how to interpret dreams. And he has like a very simple system that works. And one of the things I, I have found for sure is that even nightmares that you will practically wake up screaming from, once you kind of interpret them, 
they're almost always positive. Dreams are always positive, I think. And there's a, there's a message in there. So that's one thing that uh, when I've been at my absolute lowest, that's what has helped me is, is uh, the unconscious, the muse. You know, I believe we have this underground river flowing inside us and it's a positive river and any way we can tap into it is always to the good. You got two more for us? <laughs> this is my favorite uh, part of the show. I get to put people uh, on the spot. Um, all right, I'll, I'll just, I'll tell you a story. Okay. Um, I, I used to work uh, driving trucks in North Carolina in my younger days. And, um, and I was sort of kind of uh, lost in, in space, you know, mentally. And uh, living in places I had never lived in before and stuff. And um, I had a boss named Hugh Reeves, who was a dispatcher at this company I worked for. And I kept fucking up. I kept, you know, doing things out on the road that was, you know, required people to rescue me and things like that. And he took me out to lunch one time and he said, uh, and he clearly saw right through me, you know, and he said, you know, son, he says, I know, I don't know what's going on in your head. I don't know what drama you're living out and I don't want to know. But this company is a commercial enterprise designed to make money and you can't fuck around. When I send you out to deliver a load, you got to deliver that load. You got to do it, you know, and basically that was saying turn pro, you know, it didn't sink into me at that time in that phrase, but I definitely got it that there's a real world and I can't be living my sort of hero's journey, you know, in my own mind, I'm in the real world too. And that was a lesson that, that really stuck with me. I love it. All right, man. Well, I know we're out of time. I'm going to let you go. Thank you so much for uh, coming on the show today, Stephen. And thank you for your great body of work. I mean, I can only imagine the thousands to millions of people that you've helped get through these blocks. And, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting to think it's like when you're on mission, like you are, and, and through all of your other writing, you know, imagine all of that great creativity that's come from the muse through all of these different souls as a result of just having a framework and a model to use to break through resistance contact the muse and put their thing out. So thank you for doing that and inspiring me to do so. And, uh, you know, probably give you a shout out in my book when it's done, because it's been really, <laughs> it's been really helpful. I think hey, it's something I'll, that I'll, I'll continue I'll to, it. yeah, I'll continue to, um, you know, really keep digesting the teachings. And actually I was on your site and I saw the couple follow-up books and I wasn't even aware of those. So that would yeah, be there's, there's some good ones that'll that'll help you there yeah. one is called nobody wants to read your shit i would highly <laughs> recommend that but thank you luke thanks for having me yeah. thanks for the great questions i mean you're really very incisive and very deep and uh it's been it's been fun if you ever want to do it again i'm happy to do it again all right sounds good hey tell us what the uh, war of art mini course is all about on your site and where people can find you know other parts of your website offering social media any of that uh, I'm on Instagram. I'm on the various places uh, out there. My website is just my uh, my name, Stephen Pressfield with a V. And there is a little mini course that's just a, uh, an audio, a five minute, five five minute, you know, thing. Sort of a real boiled down version of the War of Art. But I would absolutely recommend you know read the book, read the other books that are like it, and um, you know they're they're everywhere. <laughs> 
Awesome, man. Thanks so much. Uh, great to get to know you today. I look forward All to right. chatting. Thanks a lot, Luke. And you look like you're 34 years old. You got your I'll whole life it, ahead of you. It must be the it's the, it must be the touch up feature on Zoom. You it know, must, you, that like, must be it. <laughs> you, can get, you can get rid of blemishes with one click. I love it. All right. All right. Thanks, man. Have a great thanks day. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it for another episode of the Lifestylist Podcast. And I want to take a moment to ask you a question. When you guys listen to these conversations, do you find yourself wanting to pause your podcast player or the YouTube video and look up something that was mentioned, perhaps a book or another resource, and you find it a bit distracting? Well, I want to take that distraction away from you so that you can just listen freely. We've got complete show notes and written transcripts of every word spoken on this podcast that we can deliver every Tuesday to your inbox. I'm talking about my newsletter, folks. If you're ready to get all the notes for each episode, as well as, of course, the announcement that it happened, all you have to do is go to lukestory.com slash newsletter. That's lukestory.com slash newsletter. Enter your name and best email. And magically, every week, the details you need from each and every episode will be delivered to you. Also take note, I'll be speaking at Meet Delic November 6th and 7th, 2021 in Las Vegas, along with Duncan Trussell, Dr. Chris Ryan, Aubrey Marcus, Jason Silva, and my own Allison Charles and a group of other experts in the emerging third wave of psychedelics and plant medicine. To get tickets to that, go to lukestory.com events. And with that, I'll thank you for your kind attention and loyalty to the Lifestylist podcast. We'll be back inside your head next Tuesday with episode 364. Get high on your own supply and master your moods with the happies Scott Donnell. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you soon. Mm-hmm.